Well, happy Lord's Day. He is risen. Praise the Lord. It's an absolute privilege and joy to be with you today to preach God's word. You can turn in your Bibles to John 18, 12. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. And please follow with me as I read John 12 to 27. John 18, 12 to 27. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of, his, of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered them, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Then he said these things. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, cause the truth of this message to be useful for the building up of the church and bring those who don't know you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we see your glory in his face. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. To tell the truth, are you familiar? If you are in your late 50s or older, you probably remember the game show. Some obscure occupation was put forth, and then three of the celebrities would make up some false explanation, and a fourth would then tell the truth. Well, the, fourth, the false group would try to convince the contestant that their explanation is the truth. They tried to be more convincing than the one uh, actually uh, telling the truth. And so, I must say, they were oftentimes quite convincing. Now, some of the younger generation here is probably saying, what in the world are you talking about? But it was, uh, it was quite a show back then. 
Ironically, the convincing of people to believe a lie is reflective of the world around us, wouldn't you say? A world where the truth is skewed, diminished, watered down, not treasured. You have your truth, I have my truth. That kind of a world. A world where the love of the truth is hard to find. Where many would rather believe a lie, especially when it comes to the truth as it is in Jesus. As we shall see, an important question this text puts forth is this. Do you believe and know the truth as it is in Jesus? Let me, ask, let me say that again. Do you believe and know the truth as it is in Jesus? Well, the context is this. Uh, the, uh, we have the arrest and the beginning of the interrogation of Jesus as we see in verse 12. And so the cross... Uh, examination here begins with Jesus. Three points will help move us through the text. One, expedience, and we're going to put the majority of our time here. Two, denial. And three, the truth. First, expedience, verses 13 to 14. How far might a person go in their rejection of Christ? In answering that question, take a look at verse 14 in your Bibles. Caiaphas, Caiaphas had advised the Jewish leaders of the expediency of one man's death for the people, speaking of Jesus. Now, as you recall from the prior account, the Roman soldiers, the high priest's servant, and the Jewish temple police led Jesus in change to Annas. Annas' father-in-law, the Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the reigning high priest, or should we say the one appointed high priest by the Roman governor. Just a note about Annas. Annas was father-in-law to Caiaphas and was high priest before him. According to F.F. Bruce, Annas served as high priest from 6 to 16 and was deposed by the Romans. In 18 AD, Caiaphas was established as high priest by the Romans, and was reigning high priest at this time. Now, out of respect for his prior uh, high priesthood, Annas was also addressed as a high priest, kind of like Mr. President for prior presidents. Now, the Jewish leaders have conspired against Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry, and now is the time for them to put the nail in the coffin, or should we say the nail in the cross. And so Jesus is now being interrogated by Annas, and this is no official trial according to Jewish law. What is happening is illegal according to their own laws. His arrest was illegal. No one uh, suspected of a crime could be arrested at night. No one could be arrested on the word of an accomplice, which would be Judas in this case. And interrogations were not to be done at night. But they want Jesus dead before the Sabbath. And that was less than 24 hours away. And so they break their law to establish Jesus' guilt so they can present him before Pilate 
who will render official charges and order Jesus' crucifixion. Now, the Jewish court could only hear charges, but not institute them. And in this whole debacle, Jesus is denied all his rights as a Jewish defendant. Witnesses on Jesus' behalf are not heard first, as Jewish law required. In fact, they are not heard at all or even summoned. And Jewish law forbade the striking of a Jewish defendant. So this whole interrogation is a farce. Jesus is being railroaded. Uh, and it is a royal rail railroading of the Son of God by those who reject the truth of Jesus. Annas, who is not even the reigning high priest, is conducting an illegal interrogation against Jewish law, denying Jesus his rights and abusing him in the process. And this whole situation is outrageous. And you should be outraged. You should feel outraged in your heart. Now, let me ask you a question. You and me a question. Is, that, what, is this? What sort of injustices are you outraged over? What sort of injustices are you outraged over? Now, certainly, most, if not all of us, are outraged over the injustices of Putin and his leadership. An unprovoked attack on the Ukrainian people, shelling and murdering civilians with no regard for human life, twisting the truth at every turn, him and his cronies dropping one lie after another, Lord, help us. Lord, please help the Ukrainians. Are you outraged? We should be. But what about injustices that you might be far removed from? A Freddie Gray, whose ride in a police van resulted in his paralysis and eventually death. Or numerous Asians in our country, even our brothers and sisters, who have been assaulted, battered, blamed, and other things for the coronavirus? And how about members of our own church who have made known an injustice or hardship that is bearing down on them? Do we seek to understand and enter into their lives having sympathy, a tender heart, and a humble mind? Or do we remain distant and indifferent? Annas was not only indifferent but antagonistic toward Jesus, he could only think about losing his place and position. Now, what Annas is doing, he is doing in line with Caiaphas' advice, who said that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Did you catch that? Expedient that one man should die for the people. Expediency is the reason for this illegal, unrelenting, and unjust course of action by the Jewish leaders. And expediency has to do with an action taken to attain an end 
especially one that is convenient, but considered improper or immoral. The end they have in view is the death of Jesus by crucifixion, nonetheless, grossly improper and supremely immoral. So that's what's going on here by the words of the reigning high priest. Now Caiaphas originally advised the Jewish council back in 1145. And if you recall, Jesus had, had raised Lazarus from the dead. And the Jewish leadership was inflamed. And, he, and they vehemently set out to destroy him. That's when Caiaphas addressed the council and said, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you, same word there, uh, as uh, expedient, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Did you hear that? It is better expedient for you. That is, for you the council. The Sanhedrin, the ones who get their gain from the offerings of the temple. Their reigning and their livelihood is being threatened. And they know it. It's amazing how far we will go when our livelihood is threatened, isn't it? It is better for you, leaders of the people... That one man should die for the people, Caiaphas said. They're not all at all concerned about the people. About the nation. They are concerned about their place, their position, and their pocketbooks. Does that in any way hit home to you and me? Now, what is incredible is that although Caiaphas, his words were for the Sanhedrin's immoral gain, God meant his words for good. Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, God is in control, and we need to remember that in all things. He's always in control. Working all things for his God-ordained purposes and for our good. Even working evil for good. Even working evil for good. And here, the greatest evil for the greatest good. The salvation of sinners like you and me. That's how amazing our God is. Turning evil for good. Not for everyone, but for his people. And his people alone. But God turning evil for good in no way negates the responsibility of their evil actions against Jesus. They can't excuse themselves by saying God is sovereign. And neither can we. In fact, their expediency in killing the Son of God, for their own gain, reveals just how depraved they are. Just how far their hatred and rejection will take them, killing the very Son of God. 
Now concerning expediency here, Spurgeon says this, Christ could not die without the question of expediency turning up. I never knew any great sin in the world, nor any great heresy, nor any great combination of men to maintain it without the question of expediency coming under consideration. Expediency is the great Christ killer. Now friends, how often do you and I choose a course of action not because it's right, but because it is expedient. Because it will advance me, it, it will advance my place, my position, my career, my interests, my pleasure, improperly or immorally. The expediency of compromising or, or not speaking the truth of God's word when we should. The expediency of not breaking away from evil associations as we're commanded in scripture. The expediency of, of, of write out immoral and, uh, choices and pleasures. The expediency of careless, reckless, unholy living from some momentary illicit gain. The expediency of turning your back on injustice. The expediency of not reading and meditating on God's word. The expediency of not praying with and for our fellow brothers and sisters in our church and those who are being persecuted abroad and those who are, who are working abroad, whom we know. The expediency of not praying with your wife. Why is it that we can find so much time to do so many things but pray with our wives? I was very convicted about that this week when my, we've been fixing our house for the last year. And my wife said, came up and said to me, can we pray every day together? That was super convicting. And I made a change and did repent. And you can pray for me and you can ask me that. Next week, next month, six months down the road, are you praying with your wife daily? The expediency of not reading the word of God with our children, as we're commanded in scripture. Husbands and fathers, what are we doing that takes precedent over praying with our wives and reading and explaining God's word with our children? And how about the expediency of talking about a brother or sister who offended you and not talking to them? And the list goes on and on and on of expediencies, which are sin. What needs to change? What expedient sins do you and I need to repent of? Well, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just with the result that he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen? We can be clean and not defiled. Well, Spurgeon continues. He says, how many there are of even good men who do certain things, not because they are right, but because they are expedient. 
But believers in Jesus, in the name of our Lord, I implore you, this is Spurgeon continuing, to hate expediency, since it put Christ to death. It was an expediency. A wicked expediency that would murder Christ in order to save a nation. But it did not really do so after all. For the guilt of slaying Christ would, would, brought upon the nation the glaring crime of deicide. And we know that around 70 AD, Titus came into Jerusalem, right? And so the crime of deicide, killing the son of God, that's where expediency took them. Where does expediency take you and me? Expediency. Second, denial. The scene now shifts from the expediency of the leaders to Peter. Peter is following Jesus, but as a, at a distance. We don't know the identity of the other disciple following here. There's a, there's a couple things that we do know to grasp what's going on here. And that is, th number one, Peter is a genuine disciple, a true believer. Jesus affirmed that in chapter 15 by calling Peter and the rest of the disciples, except Judas, clean. He says, you are clean. He's talking about them before God. They've been cleansed from their sin. The second thing we need to know is Peter's boastful self-confidence. In verses 13, 31 and following, Jesus was speaking to his disciples of his death, resurrection, and ascension to his father in veiled language. And Peter was confused. He nor the disciples grasped what Jesus was talking about. Then in verse uh, in 1336, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? But Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter couldn't follow Jesus then because it was not time for Peter to die. And only Jesus is the Lamb of God who can take away the sin of the world. So Jesus must go this road alone. Dying for his people's sin. Peter will follow Jesus later in Peter's death that he will die and he will join Jesus in glory. But Peter disregarding Jesus said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Whoa. Will you lay down your life for me? In other words, who's going to die for who here? Jesus continues, truly, truly, most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Not only is Jesus going to lay down his life for Peter, not only is Peter not going to lay down his life for Jesus at this time, and in the same way Jesus is going to lay down his life for him, he is in fact going to deny Jesus. And in that denial, and through the cross, 
Peter is going to see why Jesus must lay down his life for him and why he cannot follow him at this point. And so Peter is displaying great ignorance of his own human weakness and is an incredibly arrogant self-confidence. And not only that, he still lacks an understanding of Christ's need to die for him to take away his sins and the sin of the world. This is the backdrop as we approach what is happening here in chapter 18. So Peter and another disciple follow Jesus after he has been taken prisoner, verse 15. The other disciple enters the courtyard before Peter and spoke to the servant girl and brought Peter in, verse 16. Then the servant girl says to Peter in verse 17, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Now her language suggests that she is not quite sure if Peter is a disciple or not. And remember, this is just a servant girl there asking him this. In other words, she doesn't seem to be posing a major threat to, Pe to Peter with his question, with, with her question. She's a young service girl at the door just doing her service. Her, her you also statement suggests she knows that the other person is a disciple and he hasn't been indicted by her. So why should Peter be afraid? But the Peter who just sliced off the high priest's servant's ear answers a young girl's question about being Jesus' disciple with, I am not. Now, they are the only words Peter says in this whole narrative, and he says them twice. I am not. So Peter denies Jesus, verse 18, warms himself with the gang and, and warns himself with the gang that just arrested Jesus. So bold, so bold, arrogant, independent, self-confident Peter, who shortly before cut off the Malchus's ear, buckles under the question of, are you Jesus' disciple? Now the camera pans back to Jesus, which we will look at in a little bit. Then back to Peter in verse 25, where we will go now. Now the servants and the officers of the chief priest put the same question to him as the servant girl. You are not one of Jesus' disciples, are you? Again, Peter denied it. And he said, I am not. A second time. The situation is ratcheting up and Peter is falling and he's ready to have a big fall. And then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked Peter, did I not see you in the garden with him? What's different and noteworthy about this question is that in the original language, the question expects an affirmative answer. In other words, we might paraphrase it, hey, I know you. You're that dude that cut off my cousin Malchus's ear. 
I saw you with my own eyes. And Peter denied it. That makes three times. And immediately the rooster crowed. And the scene ends with Peter affirming that he does not know Jesus. Now, how do Peter's denials instruct us? I can see two indispensable truths. And I'm sure there's more, but we'll take a look at two. Number one, pride goes before the fall as Proverbs 16, 18 says. It always goes before the fall. Peter's denial of Jesus can be traced directly to his arrogant self-confidence in 1337. I will lay down my life for you. Pride went before Peter's fall. Just as pride went before Adam and Eve's fall. Satan promised Eve that if she ate of the fruit, she not only would not die, but her eyes would be open and she would be like God. She saw, she desired, and she ate. And she gave to her husband and he ate. That's what pride does. It brings about our fall. Pride brings people down. It brought down the human race. It brought down nations. It brings down you and me. And it can and has brought down marriages, families, and many a church. Many a church, brothers and sisters. Pride is anti-faith. Pride is anti-God. When Peter said, I will lay down my life for you, he was saying literally, I will lay down my life, and this is what it says, in your place. Peter was in an essence saying that Jesus didn't need to die for him. Jesus didn't need to go to the cross for him. Pride says, I am independent. I am able myself alone. I am my own God. I am Savior. I don't need Jesus' rescue. I don't need his strength. I'm good. But Jesus alone is Savior. Jesus alone is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. Even his prideful sheep. Jesus must die for Peter if Peter is to follow him. And Jesus must die for you and me if we are to follow him. And friends, here's the good news, the great news. Jesus did lay down his life for his sheep and rose from the dead so that all who believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The question is, do you believe in him? Yes. <laughs> do you believe in him? 
Have you understood that God's wrath is on you for being a sinner and for the sins you have committed and that you stand condemned before a holy God? You must understand that. You must believe that in order to be saved. But Jesus has suffered God's wrath for the sins of all who will turn to him. Have you put your trust in Jesus that he died for you and that he raised for you to be counted righteous? That his righteousness would be placed to your account. Have you believed that and have you put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? You need to in order to be saved. You must, for Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door, not a, a door, not one of many doors. I am the door, the one and only door, that if anyone enters by me, that is, puts their trust in Jesus, he will be saved, he or she will be saved, and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus will be their shepherd. So pride goes before the fall, and the second truth is, if we deny Jesus, he will deny us, just as 2 Timothy 2.12 tells us. What are you saying? Didn't Peter just deny Jesus three times? Yep, he did. Then how could you say if we deny Jesus, he will deny us? Because that's what God's word says, not only in 2 Timothy 2.12, but also in Matthew 10.32 and following. Jesus said there, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I, will, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, to acknowledge means to, to uh, according to the Lewinite Greek dictionary, to express openly one's allegiance to a proposition or a person. To express openly one's allegiance to a proposition or a person. To profess, to confess. So Jesus is saying that his disciples must express openly our allegiance to him. Hence, he who loves mother and father more than me is not worthy of me. To fail to confess him before people is to deny him. Let that sink deep down into our hearts. And yes, Peter did deny him. He failed to confess his allegiance to Jesus three times. His three denials were a failure of faith, a lapse of of his faith, but not an ultimate failure of faith, not an ultimate denial of Jesus, because Peter repented, and we have proof of that. For that's how Jesus interprets it for us in Luke 22, 31 to 32. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan Demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
And when you have turned again, repented, strengthen your brothers. And praise the Lord, he did. Yes, Peter denied the Lord three times, but he turned. Just as Jesus said, and strengthened his brothers. In fact, he has strengthened you and me, if you know him. If you've read 1 Peter and 2 Peter. You see, not only do we see Peter's turning and following the Lord in John 20 and 21, we see it in the epistle he wrote under divine inspiration. God chose Peter to write the epistle on following Jesus, bearing up under trials and temptation. In Peter's turning from self to Christ, he learned the Christian life is all about, it's all about God's grace and God's power and strength through faith. Not through self-confidence. Not through arrogance. Not through self-reliance. But it's about, it's through God's grace, God's power and strength. Through faith. Through trusting in the Lord for everything we need. In 1 Peter 1.5 he says, We are guarded by God's power through faith. Then in 1.7, The genuineness of our faith is being tested through trials. Then in 2.24, Peter says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Peter understood that Jesus needed to die for him and Peter put his trust in Jesus. Have you? This is great comfort to us, brothers and sisters, who have truly trusted in the Lord for the forgiveness of our sins. Even for our denials of the, of, of the Lord along life's path. Peter denied the Lord three times. How many times have we? Can you even count them? There is hope for Jesus deniers, brothers and sisters and friends. There is hope for those who repent. We don't need to wallow in the shame and beat ourselves up. We just need to repent. If we confess our sins, what? He will forgive us our sins. God will forgive us our sins. We can't out-sin the grace of God. So repent, and God will restore you as he did Peter, and use you in wonderful ways. Kids, all your sins can be forgiven you if you turn to Jesus and put your trust in him. All your disobedience to your parents, all your greediness and wanting what other kids have, all of your boastfulness and pride and thinking that you're better than others, all of that, all your bragging, and all other sins can be forgiven if you put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. If you believe that he died in your place and rose from the dead. Talk to your mom and dad about that later. 
Now, by dying for a once Christ-denying Peter and changing him through grace, Peter now exhorts us to be faithful to Christ amid trials. He says in 1 Peter 4.12, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings. Your sufferings are an extension of Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are to feel bad. No. You are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And again in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith. See that? Not in your self-confidence. Firm in your faith, knowing in your trust. Knowing that the, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while... 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, 100 years, or less. After you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, Peter believed that Jesus died for his sins. Do you? And Peter went on to be a faithful follower of Jesus, a man, of, a man strong in faith. And, but not perfect, but a man strong in faith. And so can you be a person strong in faith through faith. A man who endured incredible trials of suffering through faith. And so can you through faith. A man who resisted the devil firm in his faith. And so can you through faith. A man who entrusted himself to a faithful creator while doing, good, while doing what is right. And so can you through faith. Is that a description of you? It could be. But it will only happen through faith. Not from self-confidence. Not from power, the power of positive thinking. Because there is no power in that as we saw in Peter's life. Believe the gospel. 
Believe that Jesus died for sinners just like you and rose from the dead and keep on trusting yourself to a faithful creator while doing good. Expediency, denial, and now the truth. Very shortly, very quickly. The truth, verses 19 to 24. Now, in verses 19, in, in verses 19 and following, Annas, verse 24, interrogates Jesus. Uh, although um, Annas interrogates Jesus here in verses 19 and following. So Annas asked Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. No formal charges are laid against him and no witnesses are called to testify on his behalf. Jesus responds with no disrespect. Remember this morning? <laughs> we, we, very good lesson from Romans 13. No disrespect. In verse 20, he responds that all he had taught, he taught publicly, and then he was struck by the officer. And in verse 23, Jesus simply challenges them to bear witness to the wrong they claim. He said, and if what he said is right, then why strike me? You see, he simply bears witness to the truth, the truth about himself, his actions, about his teaching. I should say, and, and his teaching. It was all done publicly. No pretense or lies. And the gospel is by its very nature about public message. Jesus went public. The gospel went public. And the gospel is to go public. And it can go private too. There was no insulting of the, pri of the high priest here as he was falsely accused of. And his ministry was public. Proclaiming and teaching the truth as we are to do. Even his miracles were public and he testified and testified to the truth. He was teaching and the truth of who he is. And next week we're going to hear more of this, but let me just say it now. Jesus said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus is not only the truth, he's the way to the Father. He's the only way to the Father. He's the mediator. The only mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus, as 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us. And that's exactly what a high priest does. He mediates between God and men. And ironically, Jesus, the faithful and merciful high priest, is set over against Annas, the unlawfully appointed high priest, a puppet high priest per se. Unlike Annas, it is Jesus, the faithful and merciful great high priest who will die for sins. He will bear the wrath of his father and pay for the sins of his people. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2.24. He himself. He alone. Bore our sins. In his body on the tree. That is the cross. That we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. By his wounds. You have been healed. Healed 
of the sin problem. Believe in him. Put your trust in him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And believers, follow in his footsteps. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Continued to entrust himself. He was trusting in his father. How much more do we need to? For you see, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we confess that we have numerous times been prideful, arrogant, self-reliant, self-confident, seeking our own pleasure. We have denied you, Lord, so many times. We confess that. And Father, we are so grateful that you have sent your Son to be the satisfaction of your wrath for our sins. Oh, Father, how we praise you. You are to be glorified. And Father, help us to glorify you, we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' name.